Welcome to episode 122 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Katie Tweed, Senior Director of Content and Partnerships at Canary Media, an independent nonprofit journalism entity founded in 2021 dedicated to chronicling the transition to a decarbonized economy and society with a particular focus on the transformation of the energy, transportation, industrial, and building sectors. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. Katie is an experienced content creator, editor, writer, thought leader, and strategist with a focus on clean tech, climate, and deep carbonization. She enables clients from lean startups to tech companies that sit atop the Fortune 100 to build editorially driven thought leadership from articles and white papers to interactive immersions and podcasts to reach an engaged high-level audience. Katie's excitement about what true change can look like in the coming decade comes through loud and clear. And sometimes she writes about penguin poop. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Katie Tweed, Senior Director of Content and Partnerships at Canary Media. Katie, welcome to the Climate Champions. Hey, Lee, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. We've known each other a long time. We go back to the early, early green tech media days. Yeah, a long time back when everybody was talking about different networks for their smart meters. And that was, I think, all I wrote about and probably how I came across you, I think, back in the day. Yeah, I'm very thankful for Smart Grid and that whole era because it introduced me to so many great people, especially you and green tech. Yeah, uh, myself. And I mean, I got to probably give a lot of credit to Jeff St. John, who really like led the coverage at Green Tech Media and now is Canary Media head of news and special projects. And yeah, I think we tried to dig into everything that was happening at Smart Grid. And I think that we're both so grateful that the conversation has just widened and widened and widened about what utility transformation and energy transformation looks like in all the years that we've been doing this work. Yeah, for me too. It started out there, but I've done so many things since. But very thankful for the start. And you guys allowed me to keynote for the very first time. And that really helped me out. What year was that? I get all my GTM conferences mixed up. I'm going to guess 2010 or 2011. Yeah. Do you remember where we were? I usually can remember. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, they've all bled together in my mind. Only snippets, I think, of after parties and whether somebody broke into a hotel pool distinguishes some years from others at GTM conferences. <laughs> That's great. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment? Decades ago, I was in Australia for a year abroad at university, and I was in a course where we were discussing, you know, essentially human migration due to climate change. And this was... 2000, 2001, and talking about, you know, what those patterns might look like and how that could very well eclipse patterns of, of refugees that you've seen from, from wars in previous decades past. 
And I think thinking about that, also sitting in Australia, right, which is has these extremes of environment that's already been degraded by essentially colonial like land management practices, was fascinating and I think kind of scary, right? And and it seemed abstract, even though it was happening in, in small scale ways already. And of course, now we're already seeing that sort of en masse and in the way that populations are being affected all over the globe. But it was something that yeah, I think I started to think about early and that this was real and, and this was coming and even back then was already happening. So it's been a while since you got into this industry. What are your personal drivers now? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the planet's on fire. So I think that... The planet is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't really know if I need another personal driver than that. I mean, I think for those of us that, that work in this field in any way, and you look at tipping points and points of no return and how bad it seems now, even though we're at 1.1 degrees or something. It's scary. But I think that, you know, you think of a world that could be really, really different for for our kids, you know, certainly for grandkids. But yeah, I, I think that waking up and seeing the planet on fire every day seems like enough motivation for me. When I was growing up, I was never evacuated from my home, but my children were evacuated twice. We had to leave in San Diego during the big fires in the 2000s. It's already a different experience. Yeah, that's so scary. About a year ago now, Hurricane Ida had sort of ripped through New York. Uh, we helped literally just pull just piles of trash out of neighbors' houses. I mean, like two blocks down the street that had flooded. And then I went back to my house and jumped on work calls where people were evacuated due to wildfires. And it was like, pick your poison here and climate change. And I think it really drives home, you know, the work that we do. Because of what you do, you have a lot of knowledge. When you meet people that don't understand or believe the data or that climate change is, is human made, how do you convince them otherwise? Yeah, that's changed a lot, right? Over the past two years, I think even five, 10 years ago, I mean, even a long time ago, I mean, I worked at Audubon magazine and they did a story about how the feed-in tariffs in Germany worked for solar. And I remember my mother being like, <laughs> like, what a stupid scheme, essentially, <laughs> when she was reading through it. And now it's like, I, I, I find that that conversation has changed entirely. She's like pricing out an EV and like asking me to go over like solar quotes for her house. And I just think that the conversation has changed entirely. I think that people see it, right? They see neighbors' houses being flooded, right? You're being evacuated because of wildfires. There's smoke that makes San Francisco unbreathable at times. And I think that these conversations, I personally, and this might be because I mostly travel in certain circles, <laughs> I think the conversation has shifted entirely because people are seeing it um, right in front of them, no matter where they live. Can you talk about what you do and what Canary does to help mitigate climate change? Canary Media is a nonprofit news outlet. We are an independent subsidiary of RMI, Rocky Mountain Institute. As you mentioned, when we started talking, a group of us uh, come from Green Tech Media, uh, which have been around uh, like 14 years or so, largely covered sort of clean tech verticals here in the US, you know, solar, smart grid, then grid edge, energy storage, things like that from sort of a technology deployment perspective. 
GTM, for reasons I won't sort of labor on, was sort of unceremoniously beheaded back in 2021. And it was also time for a reboot and a refresh, right? This moment in time is, is very different from what it was 15 years ago. So we started Canary Media to cover more sort of economy-wide decarbonization. Economy-wide decarbonization is kind of a wonky term, but like it's not <laughs> just the energy system, right? It's like, so there's like energy, there's transportation, there's the entire food and agriculture system, which is almost as much carbon emissions as the electricity sector. So anyway, so what do we do? We're a news outlet, right? So we have daily news. We work with companies and other nonprofits to help them storytell and reach our audience as well. Um, and we've been around for about a year. We'd like to think we're beloved by the energy nerds. That includes you, Lee, um, for our coverage. But also what's been really interesting and different from even green tech media in the first year plus that Canary has been around is we see so many more what Eric Wessoff likes to call the energy curious. And so those are folks that, to your point of how do you communicate to this to people, folks that are concerned and interested in what a low carbon decarbonized world looks like. And more importantly, like, how are we getting there? So some of these people are decision makers in their own sectors. And some of them are just like, they're not directly working in ways in the energy industry, but they're they just want to understand what's happening because this is, you know, it's only one planet we got here. I find it interesting that Elon Musk, for example, is heading to Mars and to colonize that planet. No comment. No comment. <laughs> you know, I was at the opening reception for Climate Week last year and and the reception, John Kerry shows up and Jeff Bezos shows up and Bezos announces his billion dollars, you know, for conservation. And he talks about how fragile Earth looked from space as part of this announcement, which was like I'd spit my Prosecco on the floor as he was talking about it in this room full of suits. And it's like, well, some of us think Earth looks pretty fragile from right here. So, yeah. But for now, for most of us, this is the only planet we have. You talked a little bit about your background at Green Tech Media. Do you want to talk more about your background? Yeah. You know, I sort of started out when I was young and in college thinking I was going to communicate science stories and interesting things happening on this planet. And then every time I seem to graduate from higher education, there's a recession. And so I ended up, well, I started my career as an intern at Nova on PBS. <laughs> I found myself at News Corp at Fox and have lots of crazy stories from there from the early 2000s. And then, yeah, migrated my way back to, you know, environmental and science reporting and found myself at Green Tech Media in part because they had an office like behind a jewelry store in Brooklyn that was like three blocks away from my boyfriend's apartment. <laughs> so it was like, an easy commute. <laughs> He's not my husband, so that worked out. And then it worked out with GTM as well. Um, <laughs> because I, you know, I was I'd been there for about a decade. And I, I think I knew more than the average bear when I got there, but was very intimidated by the brain trust at GTM across their analysts as well as all of their reporters. And so it was a great community to join. 
you know, once you got to GTM, I think it was such a unique place. And then it was fun to be a part of seeing it grow. I mean, I was on the news team and I was a journalist and I also wrote for a lot of other places. And I think it was hard to appreciate how much I know now about about sort of clean tech and energy. And I, I still only know enough to be dangerous. I'm not an engineer. Uh, I'm a journalist by trade. But I think that being surrounded by so many intelligent people, we found, especially once I went to go launch our sort of custom content studio at GTM and working with clients now, I think that talking to people that are doing all sorts of different work across this and helping them understand how to communicate that and what's relevant to audiences now that I'm old has given me an opportunity to see <laughs> how important that is. And also just, I mean, you've been at this much longer than me, Lee, but seeing that arc, right? Like, Knowing that arc of conversations that come and go or watching people sort of try with the same technologies or business models that may have worked before and are working now, I th it's just been really interesting. Um, and also people coming back with things that didn't work then and probably still won't work now is, I think, is one of the fun parts. So you're talking about things that didn't work. Do you have any setbacks you can talk about? I think the hardest thing about what we do, and it's not a setback, but it's a challenge, is like... I mentioned economy-wide decarbonization. We wake up and, you know, you look across the U.S., you look across the globe, you look at everything that needs to sort of transform in the next 10, 15, we can say 20 years, but that's too many. And I think that it's hard to focus on, you know, what stories are, are we going to tell? Who are we going to work with? What are you going to focus on in the limited time that we have? Because there's so much that needs to happen in such a short period of time. What successes are you most proud of? Mm, what successes am I most proud of? That is a hard question. In terms of success, I think one thing that I'm really proud of is right before we launched Canary, um, when the news that GTM was going to be shut down happened, there was, you know, sort of a flailing of arms on sort of energy Twitter, if you will, and, and LinkedIn when that news hit. And we saw a lot of people comment that part of the reason that they were excited to get into this industry and in that they sort of cut their teeth, you know, when they were graduate school or undergrad or just learning enough to break into the industry was through the coverage and the work that GTM did. And we've heard that already at Canary a lot too. We speak to people who are sort of flooding into different parts of the sector. And I often get onto calls where people said, you know, I really wanted to move into clean tech, climate tech and reading Canary. And these are people who, who have like no idea even who, what green tech media was have said, you know, Canary has been really critical for me to feel like I, you know, know enough to be dangerous in interviews I've had. And that's been really, really satisfying. I think that's great that now Canary has a life of its own, because to me, it was all GTM and Canary was just a way to continue the journey. I love that it's a journey of its own for so many. Yeah, you know, that's happened, I think, even faster than we thought it would, which is nice. I mean, uh, the core group of people, obviously, who founded Canary came from GTM. Um, we, I would say, quite a bit of the staff, obviously, now never did work at or with green tech media. And so that evolution has been great. But additionally, we're surprised how often we hear from people that they had like no idea what GTM was, but they're avid Canary fans. And so we hope to just keep that growing. I mean, there's so much need for coverage in this space. I agree completely. 
So you are privy to a lot of data and knowledge that many of us don't have. So your perspective on this is very, very interesting to me. When you look at the world 20 or 30 years from now, what do you see with regards to the climate and how we're doing as a planet? I'm not really like a glasses half full person, but on this one, I do feel like there is enough momentum that things can change fast enough that the really terrible tipping points don't come. I mean, you probably see this in in the folks you talk to and the work that you do, Lee. I mean, there's just been a sea change, right? And it's not just like that my eight-year-old only wants, you know, a Tesla. It's that I hear and see conversations all over the place, right? I mean, you saw the passage of the IRA. Turns out it just needed to be rebranded as an inflation reduction package. I see it in conversations with neighbors. I see it in everybody I know who's getting an induction range in the past year. I think that we're at a tipping point that in a good way that I think in 20 years, the planet looks very different. We're going to lose a lot. I think that people are going to rethink where and how they live. I think that there's going to be some devastating consequences. But I think that in terms of transforming the energy and the transportation sector, I think that the political will is coming along. And I think that the money is certainly there. Well, I'm glad you're an optimist because I see a double tipping point. I see the tipping point that you see, but it seems to me that the world from a weather perspective is also at a tipping point. And to me, it could go very bad, very fast from here. Yeah. I mean, it could. That's why the next you know, listen, I'm so glad everybody's all in on giving a crap about climate change. Everyone's 10 years too late, but like, we'll take it, right? Like, we'll take all hands on deck, right? Like the ship's already listing, but that's fine. It's not really. But I think if you're going to wake up and like live every day and like, I mean, my youngest kids too, you know, so I've got to have a sort of a edge of optimism here. You know, I don't know if we'll be able to stave off the worst of it, you know, if we're going to, go well past two degrees. But yeah, I mean, look, look at all the terrible things that are happening on the planet already at 1.1 degrees. I think that's the hardest thing to communicate to people who who don't sit in this space is like, look at how messed up this is at 1.1 degrees. Take that to 1.5, take that to 1.7, right? To two, which is probably more realistic. And like, you know, that's a, a frightening scenario that that piece, I think is really, to me, that's the hardest part to communicate in all of this. But you know, a canary, like, listen, there's a lot of solutions out there. There's a lot of things happening. And I think that people are also surprised to find that a lot of these issues in the technology, it's available, right? This is a matter of money and political will at this point. This isn't a matter of technology R&D for a lot of these solutions. You know, we're past that. And I think communicating that is really powerful. I think we can go really hard with the technology we have for the next five, maybe to 10 years. But there's still some technology that can be developed during that time that will make it easier to go beyond that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Like it's not we're not at a point where everything is solved. But I I think that you look at things like aviation, you know, you look at whether somebody's going to figure out, you know, price effective carbon removal. Um, You know, there's all these things. Um, The entire agricultural sector is is one that is a head scratcher, right? In terms of whether there's going to be enough movement in the next decade on that. But 
yeah, I, I'm I'm a little hopeful. You know, I don't know. Talk to me in five years. I might be like <laughs> hiding under my hiding under my covers, crying. <laughs> From a climate change perspective, do you think the pandemic changed the future of the world? Not as much as Putin's war in Ukraine. If we're looking over decades and centuries, right? I think the tipping point of the current energy crisis will be a much larger point than the COVID pandemic. I mean, COVID changed how we work, live, and play, right? But I think that from like a macro energy perspective in the long term, I think that this war is accelerating changes that people from an energy efficiency perspective have been looking for for a long time. I hope, right? We'll see how this winter goes. It's going to be a tough one for a lot of people. That's a very interesting perspective. Do you have a piece of advice for people listening to the podcast about how they could help mitigate climate change? Only one. <laughs> what are some pieces of advice that you would give people if they want to help mitigate climate change? That's good. So I'm really torn on this. I actually sent a, a lengthy, I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant here. I, I'm a little torn on this because I sent a lengthy email to the principal of my kid's elementary school after Earth Week because I felt that there wasn't enough talk about climate change, but also don't tell kids to turn off lights anymore because everybody has LEDs. And then I sort of went on from there. And then she like nominated me to like advise the PTA on this. And so that's my fault for speaking up. So I think it's twofold, right? I think that in our own lives, there is lots of stuff that people can do. I think that as you look at your own energy use, I think understanding like where your power comes from and like whether you live in a place where you can be on, you know, sort of a renewable energy tariff, right, rather than like whatever your incumbent utility power mix is. I think thinking about the switch to electric vehicles, thinking about the switch away from gas, I think that also just supporting the organizations that are doing the really hard work to change the entire energy and transportation system is actually really powerful. This is a systems level problem. And so I'm always really torn between this like, you can do it, turn down your thermostat two degrees and tell your kids to flip the lights off when the reality is like part of the issue is there's really powerful corporate interests at play for an entrenched energy system. And I think that supporting policymakers and organizations that are trying to craft essentially a different energy system that's far more equitable and far less carbon intensive is where people should focus their efforts. And that doesn't mean you can't do anything, but like shutting off your LEDs is, isn't going to be what gets us to two degrees. I would say that installing LEDs, if you don't have one, is a way to go too. Is somebody's house still like covered in incandescence? <laughs> it's 2022, man. <laughs> Con Ed's just like delivering them to my house without me even asking. That's great. Do you have any questions for me? So I am curious. You were at, at Sempra for a long time. You were leading Smart Grid and a lot of the EV stuff. And you were sort of like at the cutting edge of a lot of the stuff that was happening. Where do you sort of see as you have now stepped away from utility life for quite a few years now, like where do you see, especially like the big utilities are at and their appetite for like wholesale transformation as you look towards like a new energy system and 
How do you think that's changed in like the past 10 years? Because I think it has, but I'm like, I mean, you used to do this and you're still probably pretty close to it. So what do you see? I'm going to be very cynical here. Oh, I'm not sure I should say this. I think that the big utilities, the ones that are investor owned, the people make a lot of money that are in upper management on the leadership teams. They don't want to lose their jobs. They want to make money. They want to have success. So they are going to focus on how to make money. And to the extent that they can make money from helping to clean up the environment, they are going to do that. I know they see a lot of opportunities in electric vehicles to expand the infrastructure, for example, which is how they make money. Rate base it. (laughs) Rate base it. That's how they make money. So they're going to be on board to that extent, especially if they feel that they can get those projects approved as bonus projects and get to invest even more money that they get to make money on. As their customers are driving them toward that transformation and, and approving those changes, it allows them to make more money. So they're going to be for it, but they're not going to do anything to jeopardize that bottom line. Yeah, it seems like the regulatory transformation is also like a piece that's just as slow as utility transformation since they go hand in hand. And I think there's been some progress, but, you know, watching it, you know, from once a reporter and now doing some other work at Canary, but it's frustrating. I mean, we see a lot of utilities that have like really, really slick marketing campaigns over certain cutting edge programs. And then on the back end, they're just like lobbying their local governments to shut down, you know, new laws, whether it's gas bans or other things that are going to affect their bottom line, right in the short term. And so I think seeing the two different hands, particularly of the really large investor owned utilities is frustrating to see. I wonder to what extent, you know, some of that might shift, particularly if if regulators are pushing them in in the right direction. And I don't want to lump every utility in there, but that's just a, a general thing. Also at utility commissions and at utilities, you do have people that really, really want to make change happen. And there are more of them all the time because people in general are seeing the need. And so maybe one day that will flip a bit, but it's going to be hard to not focus on profits. Yeah. I mean, if you're an investor-owned utility, that's sort of the name of the game, right? It's also frustrating. I think for me, sometimes we see people that are like, oh, we've, we've got we've got this really great story to tell. And it's about something that you're like, oh, I'm pretty sure I wrote about that like 12 years ago and it seemed innovative. Or are we still piloting that? You know, like, oh God. There's tons of that. There's tons of products that I saw 10, 15 years ago that are still coming to market as new products. And I really hope they make it because I've always thought they were good ideas, but it's very difficult to break in. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff and I actually joke about that sometimes. Sometimes either a company will will come up that I'm like, oh, wow, they've rebranded like 17 times. And wow, you're still at it. Like, I thought you maybe had something in 2011, but okay. You know, and then there's other things that, you know, you're sort of like, oh, that took longer than I thought. The electrification of fleets. If you'd asked me a decade ago where that would be at now, I would have said a lot further along than we are, you know, and now it's like just getting started in earnest. I do think that once that domino topples, there are many ready to go right behind it. So once the vehicles are ready, I think a lot of the companies are ready to go that direction. I think the utilities might be a bottleneck because it takes a while to build out the infrastructure that many utilities will need to. But I think it's going to happen pretty fast once it once it starts. See, you're an optimist too about this. <laughs> In 2028, fleet electrification is really going to be looking good. (laughs) 10 years too late, but that's all right. And on that note, 
I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. When it comes to human migration, you know, I feel ya. You saw the pattern of refugees already starting in Australia. You are saying now the urgency is higher because when you look out the window, the planet is on fire. Most people you know, at least in the KD Nation, they are focused on climate change conversation and even economy-wide decarbonization. Energy curious is a new term that I just heard. And also, Katie, you called me an energy nerd. Your story about GTM in Brooklyn behind a jewelry store is so cute. I'm glad you married your boyfriend. It's good you had a short commute. When GTM got shut down, it kind of made you wary. But now people are getting excited the same way about Canary. With regards to technology, you think we're at a tipping point, so that gives the world a positive fate, but you also talked about the potential that we are 10 years too late. You believe it's a lot of help to climate and to the reduction in pollution because of the war started by Putin. I'm so glad your stories that I get to read. We discussed about utilities and how they're kind of pumped by greed. It's so cool that Canary has been able to succeed. It's people like you that we need. Thank you so much, Katie Tweed. (laughs) Thanks, Lee. That was awesome. I've been a big fan of Katie's for over a decade, and it was exciting to catch up with her. It gave me a bit of hope in the midst of the wildfires we've been having in the Northwest. We are surrounded that urgency and capability will arrive before the worst of it. May the energy curious become the energy active and economy-wide decarbonization drive the next decade. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at privatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. I'm glad Katie's boyfriend, now husband, lived so close to Green Tech Media. Her two decades working across print, television, and online for energy, environmental, health, and wellness outlets has educated, inspired, and motivated hundreds, maybe thousands of people to join her in the fight to help mitigate climate change.